Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to put into a time capsule for safekeeping. They pick four things that they cherish, but they also pick one thing that they would like to get rid of, something they'd like to forget from their past by burying it in the ground and never having to think of it again. My guest in this episode is the author Ben Aronovich, whose Rivers of London series, with its main character of Peter Grant, an officer in the Metropolitan Police Force who is recruited after an unexpected encounter with a ghost into a small branch of the Met that deals with magic and the supernatural, fairly everyday stuff, is regularly the Times newspaper number one bestseller. He's published ten novels, nine graphic novels and three novellas in this series. The latest book, Amongst Our Weapons, has just been published. Ben started his career writing for Doctor Who, both for the television and in novel form. He then wrote the Doctor Who spin-off novels, featuring the character Kadiatu Lethbridge-Stewart, a descendant of Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, who has featured over the years in lots of Doctor Who stories. You'll know him if you're a Doctor Who fan. Ben has also written for Casualty. He's written audio dramas for Blake 7 and the BSB science fiction series Jupiter Moon, which came to an end when BSB was taken over by Sky. So let's discover the things that Ben Aronovich would like to preserve in a time capsule. And if my guess is right as to where the title Amongst Our Weapons originated. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. Have fun. So how are you? 
I'm fine, thank you. I'm just going to shrink you so that I can find the notes because I spent some time thinking about what I was going to put in my my time capsule. Brilliant. Because it's actually harder than you think it's going to be, isn't it? You sit there going, I don't know, what am I going to put in my time capsule? And you think, well, that's easy. I'll just, oh, no, wait. So I, I went for something thematic. So I, I've basically done a sort of London-themed time capsule. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, perfect. It goes with the books. Of course, Ben, the thing I was hoping you were going to say when I said to you, how are you, was I was hoping you were going to say, I didn't expect some kind of Spanish Inquisition. Ah! Yes, because the moment I saw your book... I knew exactly where that reference came from. Yeah, but that makes you means you're over fifty. It does. <laughs> that preferably over sixty, because like fifty, I only knew it because they were all these phrases were used in the playground. I never actually saw the actual shows live, you see. So, you know, I had to go looking for the actual reference. I could quote half of these things off by heart just from like repeating things in the playground. Yeah. Which kids still do with Blackadder. Blackadder has taken over as the thing that kids say in the playground. Really? Yeah, apparently. Well, we could do it when I was a kid at school. Everybody could go. Nobody expected expect. yeah. Our chief weapon is surprise, surprise and fear. Our two weapons are surprise and fear, fear and surprise, and ruthless efficiency. Our three weapons are we could go on forever. Once I had the idea for the theme of the book, which which contains the Spanish Inquisition, mm. I immediately thought of that sketch. And then I watched that sketch and that's when at the end he goes amongst our weapons you see and i thought that's the bloody title and i mean it's a bit obvious but hey you know what hell no i like it i like the fact you chose amongst our weapons rather than he then corrects himself with uh, amongst our weaponry yes exactly but amongst our weapons amongst our it's like you could say among our weapons but amongst our weapons has that just a slight it's just the, the euphoniousness that amongst our weaponry doesn't have amongst our weaponry sounds kind of weaker amongst our weapons is much more stronger <laughs> so that's the one i went for people don't think about especially grammar pedants god bless them and without them you know my copy editor would be not nearly so good but they say things like, oh, I, someone got very cross because I was using amongst, which they said it was an archaic form. But it isn't, apparently, according to Engram. It's just as used as among. Right. But I like amongst because it's got a much more, it just sounds better. It does sound better. It sounds as if you know what you're talking about, I think. It's like burnt rather than burned. Yes. Burnt. There are a number of words like that. And actually, you'll find that um, when you use your phone and everything, we'll try to correct you out of them. So if I write leapt, it would say leaped. With an ED. These are because they're more commonly used in American English. Mm. But in British English, burnt, leap, leapt, all the other ones. I can't even remember because I just use them in conversations. I can't remember what they are <laughs> amongst. Yeah. These are all everyday words. And according to Engram, it's a very useful tool. You know, it's as used as among. And it's just one of those little quirks. Mm. I think it sounds better. So I always go for the thing I think sounds better. Yeah. And I'm writing. When it catches your eye as well, because a title. That hard ST at the end, you see, amongst. Well, the joyous thing is, of course, you're reintroducing it to a whole generation of people. Well, they should use it. I try and use kind of flavourful language, where which is going out of fashion a little bit. I wouldn't say it was a hobby horse, but it's just like something I'd like to do when I can. Yeah. You know. Looking at the history of your writing, they're all things that explore language and concepts that aren't normally discussed. And I think people underestimate young people particularly. They think, well, they won't be interested in that. But actually, they're fascinated by it all. Oh, young people like anything. I mean, it's like, you know, you only have to look at like dinosaurs and the way young people respond to dinosaurs. You know, you've got something called a Diplodocus, right? But, <laughs> oh, that's not an easy word to say. Diplodocus, I can't spell Diplodocus without looking it up, but there are kids out there in primary school who are perfectly, you know, Stegosaurus, Diplodocus, and will tell you the difference. Yeah. And why yeah. your conception of what a Stegosaurus looks like is wrong because they had feathers or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my grandson 
was talking about the speed of light. And I hadn't thought about the speed of light, so I looked it up. And it had all sorts of interesting things, like it takes three seconds for the light to get from the moon to the Earth. And it takes eight minutes for it to get from the sun to the Earth. That is why, according to QI, when the sun looks like it's above the horizon, it's actually below the horizon. Ah, my wife works for QI. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, so I can discuss facts with other people, but never with my own wife, because she always says, yes, I know, yes. <laughs> of course, that's the joy of knowledge. What we think is true now, in 50 years' time, people will say, isn't that funny they thought that? But I'll be dead, so I don't care. Ha ha ha! Exactly. There could be some radical life extension technology just around the corner, and then you just go, oh, shit. <laughs> I know. <laughs> just miss it. Yeah, don't you always feel that's going to be the way? Like, cure for cancer! Oh, fine, now there's a cure for Alzheimer's, you know? <laughs> Bloody hell, where were you? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well. So we're going to talk about the things from your life that you, well, four things that you treasure and one thing that you want to get rid of, Ben. Yeah, I'm not sure they're from my life. They exist around me. Taking the kind of in your life is like the broadest possible conception. It is. It's allowing you to go anywhere you like. Most of them are quite large. (laughs) Okay. So what have you chosen? My first one is I would like to have London's minor street markets. I would like to put them in a time capsule because I want them to be preserved because I think we'll actually find them very useful when we shift to a more localised food production model. Yeah, Fresh food coming in from the countryside from, from much closer into markets. We will need the markets. They'll never take over from supermarkets or deliveries, but they will provide a kind of useful kind of like intermediate distribution system. And I think we'll miss them when they're gone. They're one of these things that are slowly dying and we'll miss them when they're gone. Mm. I mean, I don't worry about petticoat markets or anything like that, but I'm talking about like the one down Queen's Crescent and places like that, little markets, markets that might disappear if we're not careful. Well, there's one I can think of immediately. I walked through London the other day and was amazed to find Berwick Street without a market in it. Oh, yeah, basically gone, case in point. Mm. Okay, so what happens is the developers move in and then they try... Basically, when you have large sums of money moves into one of previously not a large sum of money part of London, it tends to scrape all the character out of it. The, money, the weight of the money kind of washes all the character out of there and becomes very, very bland. And not even noticeably cleaner. I wouldn't mind if they made it cleaner, but it just scrapes all the character out of it. And you see it down places like parts of Notting Hill now and places like that where they're just basically the character is gone because all the houses are owned by Richard Curtis. Well, no, Richard Curtis moved out. They did. See, because like Hampstead used to be like bed and breakfast land, right? People don't realise this about Hampstead, but it was actually at one point it was bed and breakfast land. The reason why it was full of artists because the houses, you know, the flats were cheap. Yeah. When I was growing up, no one wanted to live in London. There were bomb sites in Soho. And it's only in the last kind of like 20, 30 years that these areas have become attractive to the oligarchs. Mm. You know, otherwise everyone was moving out to Hastings and places like that. You are right. I can remember that when I first moved to where I live now, we always did our shopping at the local market. We would buy all that fruit and veg there. We would buy bread and we would buy meat, fish. You don't just have the stalls. You usually have shops that open up on market day and usually project out into the thing with, with things like bread. And, and I mean, it goes hand in hand with the idea that you would have a butcher's, that you would have a bakery and, and that's not a chain, a coffee shop that's not a chain and, and all that kind of thing. And it's just one of the things that really you're losing the character and it's so unnecessary we don't need to it wouldn't really take much to promote markets in and around london the the economics are not so severely against them that a a bit of 
tinkering with the kind of rent controls and stuff wouldn't kind of like encourage people to come markets. You could have, you know, a bit of pedestrianisation, a bit of this, a bit of that. You could make these markets very attractive places. Mm. They don't have to die out. We could at least pursue some of them. And in fact, the fact that you're encouraging probably wealthier people to move into the area, you would think they would have more money available to spend at a market. Yeah, but, you know, they get it from Ocado. Mm-hmm. What can I say? I know. Well, we're all slightly guilty of that. Yes. So do you have a particular market that you go to? Well, I have to buy when it's Queen's Crescent, but I'm moving soon. So it'll, I, I will have to find a new neighbourhood market. I'm actually moving within walking distance of Camden Lock, uh, which is a different kind of market altogether. So, um, I yeah, I, I like markets. I like going to markets. So I will just go and sit in a market. I like Ridley Road and places like that. Mm. And I just like sitting in a cafe watching people go past. Yeah. You know, and the one up, I forgot what the name of it is, the market up Shepherd's Bush. Shepherd, yeah, I think it's Shepherd's Bush Market. It is Shepherd's Bush Market, yeah. yeah Shepherd's Bush Market. I really like that because it's like this long tunnel down which like like line tunnel. I really like that with the railway tracks on one side. And I really like that, just that layout of that market. I just like it. And I like just going places and looking at people. I've got a friend who lives in Shepherd's Bush and he said that they did try to gentrify Shepherd's Bush market and everybody just resisted it. People wouldn't buy from the more expensive shops. The whole point of a market is it's a market. Mm. You know, it's like this whole thing, like you can't gentrify a market. A market by definition is low rent. That's what markets are. They're places where you, you know, low rent. (laughs) That's why, you know, Queen's Crescent is a market and Covent Garden is not, Mm. despite the fact that it has stalls. It's not really a market. It's just sort of, I don't know what it is, a place to get drunk, really, usually, as far as I can tell. I worked in a market when I was a boy. Which one? I worked in East Street Market. All right. Yeah. And that's still a very South London market, despite the fact that it's gone up in value. I always had uh, an idea for a book that was going to be called Market Town. And it was going to be a Rivers of London book. And it was going to be about how in London you can buy and sell everything. And it was basically going to be a tour of London's markets. And I never got around to doing it. And I kind of feel that that idea has kind of been gone off the board a bit now. But, I'm that you know, that may reinstate itself. That would involve me getting a train down to somewhere and then sitting outside somewhere for a market. Uh, drinking coffee, watching people go by. It's such a hard life being a writer. It's a tough life, I know. But also you have freedoms of markets and stuff like that that go back like to the medieval periods and, you know, those those ones where you can sell stolen bikes because, you, you know, they're not... <laughs> covered by the police and all that kind of stuff. And I thought that would be quite a fun thing to introduce, but I think they may have abolished those now, which is a pity. I mean, not a pity from the point of view of people whose bikes were getting sold, but a pity from my point of view, because it was one of those quirks. It's one of those little quirks I worry get ironed out of the fabric of the city. Yes, of course. If you had your bike stolen, you could always go and buy a cheap one at the market. (laughs) Yes, somebody else's stolen bike. (laughs) The market I worked at had some brilliant characters. We had a stall opposite us where the man sold huge amounts of crockery so he would do that extraordinary thing of saying yeah, 10 dinner plates come in and we put with him 10 side plates and he would stack them all up till eventually he had a whole dinner service in one arm he said come on i'm not asking 40 quid i'm not asking 30, 20 quid come on who wants it and there'd be an enormous pile of crockery in his arms and somebody would say i'll take it mate and he'd go okay we've got one over there and he would then throw the entire thing to his assistant who would catch it 
and then pack it up. That's kind of impressive. It was really impressive. You could watch it all day. Now there's a market to go to. You lose that stuff. Yeah. That, and that's a problem. You know, that stuff. For one of those, you have to have about eight stores selling leather handbags, dodgy leather handbags, right? You need the, That's the ratio. But if you don't have the eight dodgy leather handbag stores, you don't get the guy with the crockery. <laughs> True. That's the way markets work. You have to have a sea of cat to float the kind of gems on. Yes. My uncle's stall was a leather coat stall. Yeah. He, he was a master at making any coat fit any person. <laughs> because it was leather, he'd say, no, it, it'll grow. It'll stretch to fit you. You know, <laughs> If it was too large, he would basically come up and grab the back of the coat, squeezing it up so that it fitted perfectly across the front and say, there you are, you see? Look, it moulds itself to you. <laughs> it moulds itself. <laughs> right, well, okay, I'm going to watch for that next time I go buy a leather coat. Yes, yeah, you watch out. If anybody comes anywhere near you, it's because they're trying to make it fit you. <laughs> it was a trick we all learned. You'd say, have a look in the mirror. You'd turn people around and you'd grab the back of the coat and then it would fit perfectly. I like the element of criminality there is in markets. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, you think of like something like oh, Only Fools and Horses, that kind of like living on the kind of like where it all comes from is a mystery. Peter Van Ory at one point says, where it all comes from is a mystery. <laughs> and people went, oh, you got that from... Yes, I got that from Hooky Street. It's mm. only like one of the most well-known theme songs in British history. Yeah. The Germans get very confused by some of that. Do they have to translate the, the titles? Of course they well, do. Well, the German, I mean, I mean, Germans, you know, there's about half of all Germany speaks better English than I do, right? I yeah. mean, quite a lot of them read it in English. And then it also sells in German translation, which is a very good translation. But, you know, there's just some things that you hard to explain yeah. like that without spending like half an hour and, you know, a pointer and a flow chart. You see, that's Del Boy, right? Del Boy. <laughs> Del Boy. <laughs> <laughs> that car with the three wheels is funny because... <laughs> oh, God, I can see the quandary. Well, you must also sell books in Japan. Well, and- I, I do very well in Germany. I do very well in Czech Republic. I do very well here. I do less well in America. I do okay. I just don't do fantastically. But no, Japan was a wow, total failure. They really were enthusiastic. Gave me quite a good deal on the foot. No, sank without a trace in Japan. Really? My latest kind of far away place is South Korea, but I don't know how I'm doing in South Korea. The feedback takes a while to feed back. So, yeah. but no, in Germany is my second largest market after the UK. I'm learning German purely meretriciously. I hadn't gone to Germany before I went for my first kind of like, oh, you're big in Germany. Let's go over to Germany. And I thought, I loved it. I went, starchy food, sausages, yes, yes. <laughs> Where have you been all my life? Buses and trains at work, it's brilliant. And trams. Yes, buses and trams and everything shuts. They still have early closing days. And like on Sunday, you know, make sure you've got some snacks in your hotel room on a Sunday. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've been there. I know. Even in big cities. I mean, it's not, not even like you're, okay, you can understand like small towns, but it's also a very small town culture. So every time you go to a small town, they're having a festival. That's the thing that really struck me. Is that <laughs> they're always having a festival during the summer. Somebody's having a festival in your small town. And you just think, wow, they've got a lot of energy. I wouldn't have enough energy to do this. No, it's joyous, I think. Same in France. You'll find that all through the countryside all the time a fete well, i think it's just an excuse to drink wine in france though it is yeah first of all drink wine yay oh brilliant well of course you know any good market would also have a second-hand bookstore yeah and second-hand but actually i didn't put second-hand bookshops i should have put second-hand bookshops into the time council as well we, we'll put them in with the markets yeah I'll have a special stall for you there. When you have a market, you usually have like a couple of chip shops and a, and a restaurant and wholesalers and things like that on the same street. If you go like Ridley Road or places like that, you have places that are 
extensions of the market and you know you get you lose all of those when the market goes as well so yeah the other thing that you do lose and you have lost largely due to the licensing laws is that one of the joys of working in a market i remember was that you could turn up and you could get a pint of beer at eight o'clock in the morning covent garden was faint were notorious for being able to get pissed at five in the morning so like people would wander out of theaters at, at 11 hang out and get tournaments go out and get another pint at five o'clock in the morning next to the market i mean that was like a synergistic kind of thing i kind of like that which meant you know your lush actor could stay lush all day until it's <laughs> i have stayed lush all day yes many times so absolutely i will put Markets. Well, minor markets. Yeah, the minor markets in London will be preserved yeah. in the time capsule for you. There we are. That's item number one. So, what's number two, Ben? The the next one is proper greasy spoons, right? <laughs> I want them in the time capsule because uh, we need to stand up for double sauce, black pudding, beans, bubble and chips, right? Because I don't mind good food. But sometimes you want double sauce, black pudding, beans, bubble and chips. You don't want rocket on it. I don't want rocket on it or quinoa. I want black pudding. <laughs> That's true. The last thing you'd want on an English breakfast is avocado. Yes, avocado. And also avocado is very, very environmentally unsound, right? You know, your your black pudding is probably sourced from Yorkshire. So, you know, your avocado is coming on a plane from around the world. No, no, double sauce, which has got no meat in it at all if you're a vegetarian usually. And black pudding, beans, another staple crop, bubble, which is recycling leftovers, remember, mm-hmm. and chips, which is potato, which is another staple. These are all things that can be sourced locally and don't need to be flown in like quinoa. Yeah, and I like the fact that they will automatically put two slices of white toast there and a cup of tea. Yeah, two, Yeah, even if you're having chips. That's the thing I, I, I always love. Is, like, even if you're having chips, I ask you if you want toast. No, I'm having <laughs> chips. <laughs> I'm afraid I say yes. But no, sometimes I, I swap the chips toast if I'm on a diet. But then you have to have double toast. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> but that really actually, I realised after I'd finished it, that really went with the market. That kind of goes with the market, the, the greasy spoons. It does. It say. seems to me that you're rather keen on what I would call the working class areas of London, which always had those things in them. You see, the thing about London, London when I was growing up in it, is it was not segregated in the same way as American cities are. There was no over the tracks. If you went down Brixton, right, you had Brixton Market, you had Stockwell Park Estate where I was living, and then just across the road, you would have like those huge houses in Stockwell, which were like posh houses in Stockwell. Same with Notting Hill. Yeah, Islington. Or Summers Town. You know, you had like, it was always really much more mixed. You had variations, but it was always, you, know, you had like outliers like Tower Hamlets, which has always been where everyone ends up when they first arrive for some reason. Mm. But even then, you know, there are snobby places down Tower Hamlets. But all places had a greasy spoon. Everywhere has a greasy spoon. Westminster Coroner Court is opposite a really good greasy spoon. Yeah. Where everyone goes after they've looked at dead bodies. They go, oh, I have Westminster Coroner's Court. Yes. When I was a young man, I worked at the Old Bailey. And without a greasy spoon, you wouldn't really have been able to eat. Well, you can still find greasy spoons in the West End. You just have to find them. You just have to know where they are. Like, because down Covent Garden, when it was a market, it was wall to wall greasy spoons, right? <laughs> you know, and, and pubs that opened at eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so it's like, the West End used to be a, a much more lived in place. I mean, the West End, you know, Michael Moorcock grew up in the West End of London. It's like, like lots of people lived in the West. They lived in Soho and they lived in places like that. It was much more occupied. And I feel that we could quite happily tax one of the big coffee things into oblivion. Yeah. There's a mistake people make. It's like they go, oh, you can't tax these big multinationals because they won't come and invest. 
And you go, really? Because what? We can't open our own coffee shops. That that won't happen, right? If there's a demand for a coffee shop, people will drink in a coffee shop, right? It's like Amazon's fearful of the fact that we'll twig the fact that anyone can run a distribution company. They had the idea, but now everyone knows how it's done, right? Yeah. So you can have a distribution company. You could ban Amazon tomorrow as, as evil people just because you don't like Jeff Bezos kind of like impression of Lex Luthor, right? And you could ban Amazon tomorrow, right? And they would be replaced. The service industry that they run in this country would be replaced pretty much overnight because it's not like the warehouses would vanish or anyone, you know, they've paved the way. But once you have the idea, so a lot of these monopolies are kind of false monopolies. Yes, I agree. Yeah, you know, we've got what? There's Cafe Nero. There's, um, oh, what's it called? The other one. I don't like the Starbucks. One. Starbucks and a couple of others, right? Chains, right? If you lost one of those, it would have no impact on the coffee drinking habits of this country whatsoever, right? But it might free up some real estate for some coffee shops, some yeah. non-Starbucks yeah. coffee shops. That's fine, but it just it would, they would be different. Yes. And the coffee would be better than the Starbucks. Now, after a while, they know what you want. Yes, that's a real benefit, I think. I mean, there is a cafe I go to. I pretty much go there every morning. They got to the point where they just look at me and they start making the coffee before I, they see me approach and they start making the coffee because yeah. I'm so set in my ways. Terrible. <laughs> it's, it's not. I think that habit is a nice thing. Well, good writing habits are a good thing for a writer. Right? Yeah. Do you have a system? Yeah, I wake up in the morning and I procrastinate for about two hours <laughs> and then I try and write as much as possible until I, I fall over or I get distracted. And by distracted, there's a whole range. I mean, this is a distraction. Mm-hmm. I, I would be writing now if I wasn't doing this. Yeah, but or I could be playing Portal 2 because my son dug it out because well, I'm moving house. All these things are being dug up from under the... <laughs> Under piles of books, basically. Oh, look, Paul, too. We all started playing Paul, too. It's like, oh, no, <laughs> don't get redemption and we'll never leave. So I don't know. I'm very, I'm disorganizing somewhere. I just basically write the same way, you know, the police solve crimes just by throwing hours at it until somebody talks. <laughs> So do you know where the book is going? Have you planned it all out before you start? It varies from book to book. I don't, I mean, I've started books where I knew what happened at the end and know what happened at the beginning. And I've started books where I knew what happened at the end and knew what happened at the beginning, but I didn't know what happened in the middle. (laughs) And I started books where all I had was the title. Moon Over Soho, all I had was the title. Wow. So I just went, oh, okay, obviously it's Soho, right? And it's a track from it's a track from a threat in the opera. So let's make it jazz. And then I thought, jazz men are dying. Why are they dying? Dying prematurely. Why are the jazz men? And then it just sort of like evolved up from there. Brilliant. You know, I mean, amongst our weapons, I, I went to the silver vault and I went, I have to murder someone in here. And that's all I had was basically I was going to, I mean, I didn't have the, and then I thought, aha, who is doing the killing? And then I came up with everything else that kind of strung it together. But I, I really usually don't know much. I usually start thinking about the next book about halfway through the book I'm writing at the moment, which is a classic kind of writer's displacement thing where your brain starts thinking, oh, that'll be really good. You think, no, 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 we are working on this one. This one is the one we're supposed to be working on. (laughs) Stop thinking about the next book. And your brain goes, yeah, but it's going to be so good. It's just a classic procrastination kind of displacement activity. Because as you get towards the end of a book, you see, you start to be fearful that it's not very good. I could understand that. You unconsciously postpone finishing it. You put off the evil day when you realise it's terrible, right? That's basically the kind of deep psychological thing. So you start thinking about the next book, which of course doesn't exist and so therefore is perfect. Yes. Full of promise. (laughs) And how often, though, do you send things in and somebody writes back and says, or or your publisher writes back and says, "Mm, Ben, uh, I've got some bad news for you. 
It's never happened. Thank goodness for that. I'm famous for handing in quite a clean first draft. So my first drafts rarely need much in the way of editorial, as in there's two types of editorial. There's the editorial that says, I don't understand what's happening. And and by the way, this plot makes no sense. And there's stuff missing in the middle, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then there's editorial that says, you know, like, I'm not entirely sure what happened on page 55. Could you clarify that a bit? Or that choke does not land. I think we should lose. <laughs> and things like that. And there's that kind of slightly more technical. And then you have a copy editor who comes in and says, you know, like, don't spell that word like that. I have a brilliant copy editor who gives me, re- I mean, there's practically a research document when he hands it to me and he, he tells me where all his information comes from, even if I don't have a degree. And then I can decide whether I'm going to follow their advice. So on things like spelling and stuff, I just generally follow the copy editor's advice, except when I'm writing strictly in the vernacular, which is means, because Peter's writing in the vernacular, it's written in Peter's vernacular. So mm. therefore he doesn't say, always say things. So he doesn't say whom, right? Yes. It's just not raised thoughts, not the way he raised. And he says me and instead of and I, and things like that, which drive people mad. <laughs> and he says was instead of were, and were sometimes instead of was, because that's just the way his spoken English works, right? And it's Yeah, no, it's very clear. I have to say I'm halfway through Amongst Our Weapons, so don't do any spoilers. I don't tell you anything, right? <laughs> but, I mean, so, so therefore, that kind of breezy style is part of the appeal of the book, and so therefore, but it's good to have someone say that's not grammatically correct, and then you can decide whether you're doing that on purpose or not. Mm-hmm. Well, my thing is if you're going to break the rules, you must always know what the rules are in order to break them properly. Yes. You want to break them knowing that you're breaking the rules for a purpose. Absolutely. Most people say less when they mean fewer, but your character may well do that. Yeah. Oh, he definitely says less than a few. I mean, I don't understand the bony distinction, but it's like the amongst among, burn, burnt. It's all those ones. Yeah. It's just a little quirk. It's just a little quirk of speech. It's like the same way Americans say math. <laughs> but there's only one of them. There's only one math. But, you know, you can laugh at them, but it's just it's just a quirk. There's no reason why we say maths, except we say maths and they say math. No. But I do love aluminum. Yeah, aluminum. But you see, there's historical reasons why they say aluminum. Mm-hmm. See, there's historical reasons why they say aluminum. There's historical reasons why they say fall. It's not like they just went, well, we're going to be difficult, change the language. No, there's a reason why they say fall. Um, in Shakespeare's day, which is the language that they took over to the colonies, you would say autumn or fall. It was it, Both were in use, you see, apparently. Mm-hmm. That's what I've been told, right? And they went with fall and we went with autumn. And despite having the assistance of the French in the uh, War of Independence, they don't seem to have picked up any of their words. Like, we've got pavement and they've got sidewalk. Also, you've got to remember, they were building towns in the middle of nowhere and the sidewalk literally was something that was built onto the front of the house, onto the front of the buildings. Mm. Whereas in European cities you're actually usually paving the whole road. Yeah. See, so it is the pavement, and, and the ment bit is the bit that says it's raised. It's the ment, you know, as impediment and, and all that kind of stuff. So I hope, otherwise someone's going to tweet me and say, no, no, no. Let them tweet. This is exactly the sort of conversation that everybody should enjoy in a greasy spoon. That's what I think. Yes. Well, you see, and this, this is, this is a, uh, I think you want the, my, my third choice, because you're going to like this one. Yes, I'd love to hear the third choice. Okay, it's ad break time now, but we'll be back with more of Ben's choices very soon. See you in a minute. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And... 
don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Welcome back to Ben Aronovich's Time Capsule. Right, let's find out what else he wants to put in there. I want to put the Carlton Tavern. <laughs> I think you know why the Carlton Tavern, but uh, for those who don't, the Carlton Tavern was a pub in Kilburn, and it was the only building that had survived the Blitz, right, on its road. And it was a grade two listed building, and the developers who were called CLTX. Let's mm, name and shame them. Name and shame. Carlton Vale Limited of infamy. Um, and they sneaked in, knocked it down overnight, but they were forced to rebuild it brick by brick. And they weren't allowed to sell the site until they had rebuilt it. Yes. And they tried to wriggle out of it so many ways. They tried to add flats to it. No, you've got to rebuild it brick by brick. And that is the most beautiful story in the history of development ever, as far as I'm concerned. And I think it goes into the time capsule because as a warning to oligarchs that we are watching you and we will we will make you rebuild bloody Carlton Tavern. And I just <laughs> love the fact because it's not actually a particularly distinctive building. To be honest, architecturally, it's just a pub. Yeah, but there are loads of those Victorian pubs. Yeah. And fewer and fewer exist. There we are, fewer and fewer. Not less and less, fewer and fewer. And the reason it's fewer and fewer is because I know the number. Ah. If you can't give it a number, it's less. So there's less air, but there were fewer air containers. I know I'm a pedant. Less arrogance. You know. <laughs> I haven't got that. I want that to go in as a, as a kind of warning. It's the same cussedness that you found after um, the fire of London. Three days after the fire, right? the ashes weren't even cool. Everyone bloody went back and staked out their plot. And like Charles II had all these plans about, you know, and, and Paul Wren wanted to run huge boulevards in the kind of French style through. And, and just London and I went, yeah, pay us. We don't mind, but you're going to have to pay us. Yes. And Charles II had spent all his money on mattresses and so therefore didn't have any money. <laughs> Typically. That's why the city of London is still wiggly woggly. Despite the best efforts of developers ever since to try and kind of like run boulevards through it. And the same thing after the Second World War, I understand. Apparently there was a plan to run a park from the river right the way up to St Paul's Cathedral so you could stand at the river and look up and see St Paul's Cathedral in all its glory. But again, everybody said, no, 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 this land's worth money. But that leads me to my next one because this is a function of one of these things. Oh, right, yeah. Which is Camden Lock. Now, Camden Lock, I love because I remember when it was a tatty hippie market in the late 70s, right, where I used to buy my espadrilles and patchouli oil, that dates me. And it came about because in the 1970s, they were going to build a motorway box, part of which was going to run right across that bit of Camden, right, from east to west. Right. Hook up with the bit that comes down from Archway, where the Intrepid Fox used to be, the Archway Tavern. 
So the whole area was blighted. So it was an old industrial area that used to feed off the canals, which mm. I like anyway, because I like kind of like historically industrial sort of mix-ups. And um, so they had a temporary market. They opened a temporary market in 1974. And then everyone dropped the idea of motorway, thank God, motorway box inside central London, because it would have been a freaking nightmare. <laughs> um, in 1976, and then the market just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it is now the fourth largest tourist attraction in London, right? And the thing I like about it, of, unlike all the other tourist attractions, it was, nobody wanted it to be the fourth largest. <laughs> no one said, you know, it's not like Covent Garden where they said, we are going to create a tourist trap right here. La, la, la. We're going to redevelop it, make it a tourist trap. No one, has a, no one had a plan. No one had a plan that said, because, you know, TFL... It's a nightmare for TfL because Camden train station, which is one of the most complex interchanges on the Northern Line anyway, is not big enough to handle the number of people that come in on a Sunday. Mm. But they can't build another station there without kind of excavating kind of like a, a, a kind of super basement into the thing, which is hugely expensive. So I know they had plans to do that. They were going to go down in through the Sainsbury's car park and just excavate a whole cavern underneath the existing site because right. it's just not, you can't handle the number of people. It's dangerous. They have to close the bloody station, which is just hilarious to me because all my childhood, I was going in and out of Camden Station all the time. It was where you crossed over when you went up to Hendon or something to see the RAF Museum. You just come down and go up from where I used to live. So I love it because it's insane, because it's insane and because nobody planned it. And I love things that nobody plans that are huge. Yes. And it's disorganized and it's chaotic. And, and, you know, they keep trying to rationalize it and get rid of it. And it keeps refusing to be rationalized and got rid of. And for me, which is the theme, I suppose, of these time captures is all the things that you can't, eccentric things that you can't get rid of, that they, they want to get rid of, but they can't get rid of. That's, yeah. I would say, that's the theme of this time capsule. It definitely is. They're all precious parts of London, I think. Yeah. I think that the character of London is in those items that you've chosen. I mean, I could have put other things. Oh, there's a bagel shop I would have put in. Lovely. Kingsway Underground, bit that tunnel, the little kind of shortcut that goes from Waterloo Bridge yeah. on when you go north. From my childhood, that's just a, a memory. That was like the exciting kind of move into hyperspace. Like, like, like when I was five, my dad used to drive down there. Ah! And also a really good scene in a film called, in a TV series called Widows that I, I particularly like, where they, where they blow themselves up in there when they're trying to rob a van. And I love all that kind of stuff. That's the only part of London where you suddenly feel as if you're moving quickly. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, this is the 70s. So you welcome move quite quickly. I mean, I'm amazed when I look back on my dad driving around London in the 70s and how smoothly and... But, you know, this is what happens if you develop a car-dependent culture. You, your cities clog up. Yeah. And everyone goes, oh, no. Even if you have self-driving cars, it's just going to be exactly the same. There's just mm. going to be very slow-moving self-driving cars. I do miss the days. You drive right into the centre of London and park by the stage door. Yeah, mm. but that was back in the days when, you know, there were, I think, the number of cars per person has tripled or something since then. And you don't think that having driverless cars will suddenly open it all up again? The thing is, cars are big, chunky, inefficient ways of moving people around cities. You only have to look at like a, a cycle lane and the, the ridiculous number of people at rush hour who go down the cycle lane on the embankment, the one that the cabbies moan about constantly. And I have a lot of sympathy for cabbies, but they moan, oh, you never see anyone. No, because you can get like 10,000 cyclists down that cycle lane in an hour. Yeah. And you can't even get like 500 cars down that in an hour. And so that's, that's the kind of like, that is why the cycle lane is there because 10,000 people can efficiently move from point A to point B down it. But you don't see it because 10,000 cyclists is a much smaller 
Yeah, that's not really 10,000. I, I actually need to look that up. I should look that up. Sounds reasonable to me. It's a lot anyway. It's a lot of people go down that thing. But that also leads on to the one I want buried and got rid of. Fantastic. Yes. What is it? I want to get rid of the dongle way. <laughs> right? I want to get rid of the bloody Emirates airline. It's an absurd vanity project that serves as the perfect illustration of how under a surface layer of glitz, how monumentally wasteful and useless Boris Johnson's whole existence has proved. <laughs> I went for a ride for it and I would love to have a fight sequence on it. I mean, you know, because I went, I thought, oh, fight sequence on a dongle way. Only I couldn't think of any bloody reason why anyone would be on it. No. It's barely got any tourist function and it soaked up a pile of London taxpayers' money right in the middle of an austerity push. So I say bury it deep. I will do. I know it's an absurd thing, isn't it? I mean, it looks spectacular, I think. Yes. But when you get to it, you think, well, what are we going to look at? Yeah, also, yeah, some of the ugliest bits of London. Oh, oh, great. Yeah, I wanted to have a good view of the industrial heartland of London, you know. <laughs> no, it's like I've got nothing against the idea of a cable car, right? I think a cable car would be a fun thing to do, but it's mm. the positioning is just weird. It just doesn't seem to serve any function. No, a cable car going from, say, Waterloo to Bond Street would be useful. Oh, that would be cool, wouldn't it? Yeah. We need more eastern crossings, right? But, you know, it's just not a very sensible thing. No, you can't get a car on it for a start. Well, yeah. You know, I'm not so bothered about the car because I don't drive. People go, oh, you don't care about car drivers. I care as much about car drivers as other car drivers care about other car drivers. Yes. The difference is I don't have a car, and so therefore I don't worry about these things about myself. No. <laughs> you went up to any car driver in London and said, I tell you what, we're going to put the congestion charge up to £1,000 a day, right? But you're immune. Then take it. <laughs> there isn't a driver in London who wouldn't take that deal, and, and so they're just liars and hypocrites. I can't understand anybody who lives, I would say, within the North Circular or South Circular area of London. Yeah. That whole area is incredibly well serviced with underground stations and actual stations. It's the lowest level of car ownership in the country. And rightly so. But people have them, but they don't use them to go into town. I mean, no. You have to be a masochist driving to central London unless you absolutely have to. So they use them when they go out of town, which is why the M25 is the car park. Yes. But at the same time, how often would you do that, do you think? Not that often. I'm very happy to use a self-driving car to get me out to the places where public transport doesn't go when I have to do research. And there are lots of places on, in the periphery of London where the, the public transport is very scarce. You know, when I'm researching books, I, I often go, can I get there on the tube? Can I get there on the bus? How long will it take me? Mm. One of the reasons I chose Elephant Castle is because I could just hop on a 168. I spent hours and hours going past Russell Square. Oh, God. Why are you digging up Russell Square again? There's some sort of military action going on in there, I think. Who knows what's going on down there? I think they're building a place for the entire government to go into when everything falls apart. What, in Russell Square? Yeah, Boris has got something going on there. Boris wouldn't stay in London if things were falling apart. Boris would move back to Oxfordshire, where he belongs. True, where all his money's buried. He should move back to Oxfordshire and become mayor of Oxford. Can he do that today? That would be nice if you could arrange it, Ben. I mean, my problem with Boris Johnson is not, is, I think he's intrinsically evil, but because he's just incompetent. I wouldn't mind if he was, like, good at being an idiot, but he's just not very good at being prime minister, and it's just when we quite needed a, you know, a couple of crises on the horizon here where we could have done with someone with a bit more talent. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think he would make a good small-town mayor because he would be flamboyant, he would bring in tourists, and he wouldn't have too much money to waste. And the civil servants, you know, the, the local civil servants would make sure the rubbish was collected on time and everything, and he would just hang from zip wires and all that kind of stuff. 
Yes, particularly a German town. He could just throw festivals all the time. Actually, that's not bad. I think you should move to Oxford and throw festivals. We might all move in if we could afford it. I'm never moving out of London. Now, you strike me as being a London boy through and through. I describe it as I will leave this town when they prize it out of my cold, dead fingers. <laughs> not fond of the outer suburbs, to be honest. But I'm also a central London boy. I'm not just a London boy. I'm a central London boy. Right. So I grew up in zone two. Thank you very much. So, you know, I get a nosebleed if I go the other side of the North Circular. Although it's strange, isn't it? Because, in fact, as a writer, you could sort of live anywhere. Yeah, but one of the things is, to be honest, I'm a very introverted writer. So if I lived out in the middle of nowhere, I would literally have no contact with people at all. Mm. But I like the idea of living in a big crowded city because I like the feeling of people around me. I like the noise, the bustle, the possibility that if I really needed to talk to someone, I could just walk out and strike up a conversation with someone. Yeah. And you can, you can, you know, you may have to make five or six attempts. But you definitely can. You can. There's, there's possibilities. When you're in London, there's possibilities of human interaction. When you're out in a field, you can talk to cows. That's it. That's your kind of. And also, everyone out in the countryside knows everyone else's business. And I don't want everyone knowing my business. It's bad enough on social media without everyone actually knowing my business. You know, <laughs> some people aren't suited to live in cities. Misanthropic, hmm. antisocial people should go and live in the countryside. <laughs> With Boris Johnson. Actually, he'd make a very good rector, wouldn't he? You can imagine him as a rector of a kind of slightly impoverished parish. You can. I, 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 I beg your pardon. Was there, was there a funeral? I'm afraid I missed it. I was having lunch. I do apologise. Yes. That would be him, without the apology. <laughs> ben, I really look forward to reading the rest of the book. Good, I'm glad you are. The best of luck with it, and thank you so much for telling me the things you've put in your time capsule. I feel we've got London encapsulated. Well, at least bits of it. Thank you very much. Bye. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Ben Aronovich. You can subscribe to this podcast for all episodes as they're released on any podcast player. Do take the time to rate the show as it really helps to promote it. You may even find the time to write a short review for which we will be eternally grateful. Well, a couple of weeks at least. You can follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And you can listen to the theme tune composed and performed by Pass the Peas Music anytime on Spotify. You can even download it, if you know how. This has been a cast-off production made with the assistance of Acast. So thanks to them. And many thanks to our producer, John Fenton-Stevens. Look out for our special second birthday episodes in a couple of weeks with a very special guest and an episode where several listeners tell me the things they'd like to put in a time capsule. Brilliant. But don't panic, we've still got several new episodes to come before that. And we have over 180 other episodes that we've released in the last last two years. Yeah, impressive, isn't it? No, no, please don't clap. Thank you. Especially if you're sitting alone listening to this, someone will probably throw you a fish. Still, I can sense that you are in awe of my work ethic. It would seem I'm tireless. Like my car, bloody vandals. Bye. <laughs>